Amen. Well, today, we're just going to cut to the chase here in the intro part. Today, we're going to be talking about failure and success. Failure and success. We're going to be talking about our failure and the wide spectrum of how that comes to us and how that comes out of us, but how that's also countered by the success of Christ. And we'll see where ultimately we are proven that Christ is successful in all the things that he promises us. But like any good pastor trying to figure out what intro to do, I quickly went to the Google and I typed in failures turned to successes. And I know that this is a popular top 10 list thing that people do almost every year and love to read through. But I was, I was struck by some of the, the well-known products that we use day in and day out that actually were catastrophic failures until somebody either made a mistake or figured it out and turned it around and now it's a commercial success. Not to spend too much time on this, but I just want to let you know that WD-40, if you guys know where that number 40 came from, that's how many times the technicians in the lab try to figure out how to make a lubricant, 40 times. Did you guys know that? I did not know that until like eight minutes ago, sitting there during worship trying to figure out what my intro would be. That's, that's actually not true. That's not true. Strike that from the record. No, I definitely, definitely had this planned out. Wheaties. Wheaties was actually marketed as gruel. That should be a failure right then. But, but it actually tasted nasty. If you're naming your food gruel, then probably it doesn't taste too well. Uh, luckily for some technician, he accidentally spilled it on a pan and it flaked up and then it became cereal. So somebody took gruel, fried it up, added milk to it, and now Wheaties is an extremely popular cereal. My favorite of all these, uh, I got a good chuckle out of this, bubble wrap. Does anybody know what the original use for bubble wrap was? I mean, I actually audibly laughed out loud. It was wallpaper. <laughs> wallpaper. Now, <laughs> you're eating gruel and you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to take small bubbles and I'm going to put those on the wall. And that's going to be fashionable, right? Well, uh, they actually then decided to use it as insulation, probably a little bit more of a, of a better idea. But then uh, finally somebody said, hey, why don't we just start trying to pack stuff here? It's the, that's not the concentration here that I'm trying to get at. I was looking at an article that was pointing out a few of these failures that turned into successes. And sure, some of these are funny, and we can Google as many of these as we want and get a good chuckle out of it or be surprised or whatever it might be. But at the end of one article, one of, one of the authors actually transitioned the whole thing. He did his top 10 favorite failures to successes, but then he actually gets into to the purpose of why he's writing it. And he ends the whole article, his top 10, with this. He says, four ways to not let failure get in the way of your ultimate success in life. Four ways. This author who had just humorously pumped me full of useless information is now going to turn the tables on me. He's going to tell me how to avoid or, if anything, to use failure that happens to me or out of me for ultimately success in life. I read through them, and they're, they're standard stuff. One, accept failure as part of the process. Uh, two, when you fail, don't sulk. But it was the third one that, that caught my attention. It was, be ready to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps. So in this moment, with all the humor and all the, all the useless information, this guy is telling me that really, yes, failure comes from you right? The common denominator between all the failure you experience is you. No ifs, ands, or buts. And yet, the solution is also found in you as well. 
And that's, that's, a, that's a tough thing to think through. It's also a tough thing to prove. Sure, there's some failures in life that uh, they taste nasty, like gruel. And maybe there's some failures that you accidentally solve as you spill it on the counter and fry it up on accident. Sure. But I think the failures that you and I are most concerned about are the failures that affect us deeply. The failures of the world around us. Failures of loved ones around us. Failures that we're confronted each day as we wake up and we know that we don't have, we shouldn't have that desire, we shouldn't say those things, we shouldn't think those things, we should be better at this. After so many years of knowing that this is a problem, I'm still stuck in this pattern. And those are the failures that we dwell on. Those are the failures that impact us, that keep us up at night. Can we change those? Is it true that we have the power inside of us to flip those failures on their head and make them true, genuine, lasting, valuable, important success? Do we have the power to turn our lives around? Thankfully, our passage today is going to point to the bad news of this, is that we can't. We can't turn those failures around. Failures can't fix failures. But thankfully... As we look at Christ here, we'll see that there is, there is available for us the reversal of failure. There's for us, through Christ, a gospel success. I'm going to praise God for that. If you're taking notes, I'll give you the big idea now. It's that true humility arises from the gospel. True humility arises from from the gospel. And I think our main consideration today is, I think we would, we would definitely intellectually say, yes, Josh, you don't need to prove it to me. I know that I have failed and I will continue to fail until the day the Lord calls me home. And on the opposite hand, I, will, I intellectually know that Christ is successful. I get that. I understand that. But where do those two things meet in daily life? Where do they meet in daily life? And this passage is going to show us our response to Christ's success is humility. So look at me in verse 1 here. It says this, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him, and they asked him to show a sign from heaven. So reversing back to verse 39, we see that Jesus kind of breaks away from the pack here, and he goes to this unknown region, Megadan. We don't know where that is. It is some spot along the Sea of Galilee. This is after Jesus feeds the 4,000 miraculously. And we get this sense that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious rulers, the social rulers of the Hebrew people at that time, are kind of waiting for Jesus to land. And when he does, they sort of pounce on him. They come to him and they want to test him. And so they test him by asking for this sign from heaven. What they're getting at here is they want Jesus to perform a divine miracle. They want to do something that no other man, no other person could do. What they're trying to get Jesus to do is to prove that his claims are true, to display this, this miracle of power for them. Kind of have to get into the, into the context here. Here is the full representation of Hebrew tradition, Hebrew power, Hebrew religious social energy coming to Jesus, and in a sense, putting him to the test, all right? Putting him to the test. 
This has a, a, a negative feel to it. Not just that they would come to him and test him, but really what they want out of Jesus is one thing, and that is failure. They want to put Jesus in the, in the public eye. They want to put him before the religious, social, those Hebrew leaders, and they want to put him in a spot where he has to prove himself with a miracle in order to verify the claims he has made. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't play their game. They want him to fail, but what Jesus does instead is he turns and actually aims it directly at their hearts. What their request of him actually shows them about their own hearts and what they believe and what they're genuinely after. Verse 2, Jesus turns it on them. He answers them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. What's going on here? Jesus is revealing, as we get here in verse 4, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those that follow them actually are, are working out of an evil and adulterous heart. Really, their, their wickedness is coming through in their interactions with Jesus. Because of the desires of their heart, because how they see what they want to follow, they are willing, as far as these, these two words, evil and adulterous, are concerned, they're willing to abandon God in pursuit of their own wickedness. The ironic proof of that is Jesus' weather metaphor here. I'm not exactly sure if this is a metaphor. That's the first word that came to mind. When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. This is a, a common saying. This is a common forecast, right, for those who worked agriculturally in there. So the Pharisees, Sadducees, they would want to know how to read the weather, how to read the sky in order to instill hope in those around them, right? It would be a good day to plant, it would be a bad day to plant, so on and so forth. But what Jesus is getting at here is they're asking, you just got to see the irony here, they're asking for a sign from heaven, from Jesus, yet they know how to read the sky, they're saying their whole entire priorities are upside down, right? What they should be able to do is they should be able to tell the signs of the time, right? In verse 4, we see this, even though adulterous generally seeks for a sign, right? What they should be doing at the end of verse 3 there is interpreting the signs, signs of the time. They want Jesus to fail, right? And that shows up in the fact that they know more about the weather than they do the Old Testament Scripture. They'd really been paying attention to what God had put before them. If they were really looking for the sign of heaven, they should be able to see Jesus as the sign of heaven. They shouldn't be asking for more powerful miracles. They shouldn't be asking for more of that stuff. They should be coming to him humbly. Yet, they want him to fail. Why do they want them to fail? Why does he want Jesus to fail? They want Jesus to fail so they wouldn't have to submit to him. If Jesus couldn't prove, you know, in their minds, if Jesus couldn't prove that he was God, then did he really have authority over them, right? The religious social leaders of the day, they were obsessed with the religious, the traditions, the politics of running the Hebrew people. And Jesus was an absolute threat to their established power, their established pride. 
So they come to Jesus, not just prove for the good of all that Jesus really isn't who he says he is, but really what they're doing is they're trying to defend what they love most, which is themselves, what they have going for them, their establishment, so to say. They wanted Jesus to fail so they wouldn't have to follow him. And Jesus cuts right to the chase here. He doesn't say you're mistaken. He doesn't say, sorry, guys. He says, this is an evil and adulterous move. The, the pride of the Pharisees and Sadducees in this moment, the pride to be better than Jesus, to have the foot up on Jesus, comes from the wickedness, the faithlessness that they've been harboring in their hearts. They wanted Jesus to fail so they wouldn't have to follow him. The heart root here is the wickedness that they love. They love the power they already have. They love the social equity that they gain from their position. Before we stomp too hard on the Pharisees and Sadducees, we need to think to ourselves today, how are we like them? How are we like them? Do we test Jesus? Do we put these propositions before Jesus and say, if you don't do X, Y, or Z, then I am not going to follow you? Do we exercise pride in our hearts that way? Or maybe we love something so much that we say, Jesus, I know what you've promised me. Jesus, I know what you tell me about yourself in the Bible, but I'm still fine because I have X, Y, Z. You guys can think through your own hearts. Think through your own lives. Look at the evidence of what it is that you spend the most time on, talk about the most, love the most, can't wait to get to after a long day at work, whatever it might be. Think where your hearts might be gravitating to something other than Jesus. Maybe we wouldn't say it this boldly. Jesus, if you don't do X, Y, Z for me, then you can forget about my obedience. You can forget about my worship on Sunday. You can forget about all that stuff that you ask of me. Maybe we'd never say it that boldly. But we can also ask the question, where does our hope fail? Where do we limit God's grace in our lives? Maybe we know what God promises us through the gospel and we just flat out reject it. Either way, the source here is pride. And just as pride blinded the Pharisees to the truth of who Christ is, the same thing happens in our lives as well. Our pride, our selfishness, what we think we have apart from Christ, when given too much of our heart, when it's not put in the proper place under God, really derails us, blinds us from the truth and really the pure goodness of the gospel. I think that works its way out in in two separate ways here. When we think about ourselves pridefully, that separates us from God. And so then we start thinking to ourselves, okay, I can save myself. This is self-righteousness. I do have a stake in the truth of the gospel. I can earn what God has promised me through Christ. There really is rescue. There really is salvation apart from God. And if God can't do it, if God won't do it, then the next logical conclusion would be, I will do it. I can do it. Think about how we try to manufacture hope in our daily lives. Think about how we try to manufacture peace within our families. Think about all those good blessings of the gospel that God gives us in faith that we sort of wrench out from his hand and say, no, God, I know that you've promised these things, but I will do it. I will manufacture it. I will fix it. 
Self-righteousness comes when we see ourselves pridefully apart from God, when we think we have a stake in that. But on the other side of the coin of self-righteousness comes self-indulgence. Again, we say, Jesus, I know what you've promised me. I know these things that you've given me through your life, death, and resurrection. But you know what? I really am truly good with spending my Sunday watching football. I really do just think it's easier for me to prioritize success at work than time and ministry in my family. I know what you say about the the goodness of sacrificing myself for the benefit of others, but Lord, I just really like where I'm at, at church, where people come to me and serve me. Self-indulgence, right? To be satisfied without God shows up in our lives as we seek to pridefully manufacture our own satisfaction. What should ever turn our hearts away from pride and selfishness? Again, true humility arises from the gospel. Look what Jesus says to them at the end of verse 4. Gives them the bad news here. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. Right there, that sounds very hopeless, right? You guys are stuck in your evil, adulterous ways. You have turned from me. You have pursued wickedness. It shows up in how much you know about the weather, but you don't know about me. And yet, we read here, but... Now give to it the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah. We know Jonah spent how many days in the belly of the whale? How many many days in the belly of the whale? Three. All right. This is just like youth group. Yeah, it's three. All right. (laughs) Three days. Three days, right? All right. Sometimes we feel like that. Stuck in the fish belly, right? Smelly, stinky, dark. That sounds like life through and throughout. But Jesus here is saying he's not going to spend that much time in the belly of a fish. What he's going to do is spend that much time in the grave. Jesus dies and he spends three days in the grave and then what happens? He's resurrected. So this sign of Jonah is that Jesus will be resurrected to life after his death. And really the the key to true humility is that Jesus is resurrected, right? Jesus in his resurrection is proven to be the Messiah King that the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to force him to prove now. He won't give them a sign from heaven now, but he will give them the greatest proof that he really is the promised Messiah, that he really is the king over all things, and that is his resurrection. And if you look at the Bible, it's interesting, right? Jesus resurrects, and then he spends a bunch of days with his disciples, and then he goes out, and he's seen by a whole bunch of other people. And if you read the Bible from his resurrection on, it's really interesting to see all the reactions to the resurrected Jesus. The one that comes to my mind first, and I think is most uh, potent for us this morning, when we're talking about faithlessness to humility, is doubting Thomas. You remember his words, right? I will not believe it until I stick my hand in his side. And then what happens? Jesus miraculously appears to him in the group of disciples, and he says, go ahead, Thomas. Touch. Stick your hand in my side. See that I really have come back to life. And Thomas, you kind of imagine his face just scrunches up right to the middle of it as he's really put on the spot, right? And he, he, he touches Jesus, and then he just says one simple thing. He says, Jesus, my Lord and my God, right? 
The, the resurrection is the key to our humility, understanding that when Jesus rose from the dead, he not only defeated sin and Satan, but he proved that if there was ever a king over everything, it is him. And if he is the king over everything, then our allegiance is due him. We ought to be humble in response to the resurrection. Now, humility isn't just thinking of yourself less. That's part of it. And it's not just thinking of other people more. That's also part of it. But true humility, baseline humility, the humility that Christ is after here, is that we humbly accept his plans and his purposes. We humbly accept God's plans and his purposes. That we wouldn't say, Lord, prove it to me that you are who you say you are. But Lord, I trust that you are who you are. And because of that, I know your plans and your goals and your desires are good for me. How does humility, how does this humility, humility to accept God's plans and purposes work out in everyday life? I have three examples for you guys. The true Baptist example. Three points. Obedience, contentment, and worship. When we are humbled to God's plans and his purposes, right, we humbly submit to what he has called us to do, and that shows up in obedience. We desire to do what God wants us to do. We look at his commands. We don't see that as a burden. We don't see that as a war between what I want to do and what God wants us to do. Instead, we see it as God's good plan, his good gospel plan, and we fall into that with humility. Say, yes, Lord, I understand, so I will do that. But at the same time, contentment. Lord, because your plan is good, because your purposes are good, I know that the things I have, both good and bad, are for your glory and my good. You guys think about contentment often? Think about contentment and the peace that we have in Christ, or are we too busy thinking about the things that I wish I had, the things that I see other people have. I just wonder, are we, are we more uh, sulking in our jealousy and envy of others and other situations, or are we praising God for the things that we have and that we don't have? In the resurrected king, we have all that we need. So obedience, contentment, finally worship. I think worship here really does have to stem from humility. The truth of the gospel and God's a resurrection to prove that the gospel was done, complete, fulfilled, successful, it should result in our worship. And not just praising worship, but our worship with everyday conversation, our worship with everything that we do, whether we're going to work for the 30th year in a row, 50th year in a row, whatever, right? Worship inside of our families. When we don't want to speak kindly to our kids. We don't want to speak kindly to our spouses. Don't speak kindly to our mothers and fathers. And yet, Lord, we know that there is a true worship that can be done with loving speech. Really, the worship here is to love God and love others. But on the other end of this, maybe today you really are asking Jesus, are you worth my life? Maybe you would confess in your heart that you really have not responded humbly to the truth of the gospel. That God's, the resurrection of Christ out of the grave really has not impacted your heart in a way where you have responded to God. Yes, I trust that your plans are good. I trust that your promises are good. 
I wonder if you really are just stuck in jealousy, defeat, darkness. Maybe you would say that my life does smell like the stinking belly of a fish for too long, and I've tried everything I could possibly have done. I've consumed everything. I've even got my hands on, and nothing seems to satisfy. Nothing seems to save me. I encourage you, think about the truth of the resurrection and what humble faith in God would look like for you. Know that in the cross there is the success that our souls yearn for in God. Now this is, of course, an analyzation of the Pharisees and Sadducees trying to test Jesus, trying to make him fail. And we know that through the resurrection he doesn't fail, God doesn't fail. But what happens when you and I fail? This is where the disciples come in clutch for us. Look at verse 5 here. We get this uh, humorous story about how the disciples perceive what Jesus is talking about. Verse 5, we read, When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Now, commentators are a little up in the air about what this actually is pointing out about the disciples. Uh, one of two things. One, they, uh, the irony here is they're just coming off the feeding of the 4,000 right, where there was basket loads of bread left over, and they hop in a boat, come over, and they're like, oh, no, we forgot bread. Like, we just were surrounded. We were up to our eyeballs in bread. Like, how come we didn't bring any? So the first thing here is just genuine male forgetfulness. Like, literally, they were up to their eyeballs in bread, and then they thought to ourselves, we're going to some place where there probably is no bread, and so we should not bring any of this bread. That's the first thing, right? The second is, is that actually sinfully working in their hearts, they were expecting Jesus to just provide physically for them. That the expectation is, we're rolling around the countryside with God. And so, in the same way that the Pharisees did, we're going to put Jesus to the test. We're going to leave all this bread behind so that when we get over there, he will have to produce more for us. So whether it's actually this sinful expectation, again, putting Jesus to the test, or it's just genuine male forgetfulness, we read what Jesus says next. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So fresh off this conversation with the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus warns the disciples about the leaven. The leaven here, of course, is something unseen, working throughout the, the dough to raise it up. Right? It's actually a piece from the dough from last week. They put it into the dough of this week so that it works its way through. It permeates. The idea here is that there's something unseen that works its way through something totally, anything it touches. Jesus is saying here that the, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is infectious. Now, once it kind of worms its way into the mind, once it kind of worms its way into the heart, it's hard to get out. What is this teaching? That's what we talked about already. And so we can be saved and satisfied apart from God. The same thing that drove the Pharisees to try to put Jesus to the test, to create failure in him, to disprove that he is God, Jesus now warns his disciples, don't give in to that same teaching. Look at the disciples' reaction here. Verse 7, And they began discussing amongst themselves, saying, We brought no bread. So they can't even see what Jesus is talking about. They're so wrapped up in their own failure that they're totally forgetting what Jesus is talking to them about. Jesus literally said to them, and I know some of us are male here and we don't communicate and we don't receive communication well, but they literally said to them, forget about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And literally they just turned right to themselves and like, but we brought no bread. That doesn't actually make any sense why the disciples would arrive at that conclusion. Yet 
right? They do. We brought no bread. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave them there, but he he continues to talk with them. Verse 8, Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith. We need to ask you an important question here. Here the disciples are wrestling with their forgetfulness or their sin. And Jesus, confronting the physical problem that they have no bread, says, you of little faith. How does forgetfulness and faith work itself out? He continues, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? Don't you get it? Do you see it yet? Do you not remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Maybe that's Jesus' way of saying, did you forget? Did you remember all the bread you forgot? Verse 11. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus here is wrestling with the failure of the disciples on the disciples' behalf. They're wrapped up in their failure, and Jesus is saying, you have to look, you have to look at me, even in the midst of your failure, look to me. The Pharisees, though they've witnessed these amazing miracles of feeding thousands of people with almost nothing, they're still unable to perceive Jesus and his teaching and his messiahship. Looking at him, and they're too busy blinded by their own failure. They couldn't recognize Christ. They couldn't hear him and listen to him and understand and perceive what he was trying to say and who he was because they were too busy focusing on their failures. Their failures were blinding them. Whether they were, again, wrestling with their sinful expectations and how Jesus called them out on it or just their forgetfulness, whatever it might be, their failures blinded them to the truth of who Jesus was. And if we're not careful, and if we overemphasize our failure, we can be blinded to Jesus and put the gospel in the back seat of our lives. Overemphasizing our failures underemphasizing the the truth and the power of the gospel is an exercise of pride. Once again, we're taking the top seat. Once again, we're thinking to ourselves, I'm in control. I can rely on myself. Just in one of the simple ways that you can think about this is that I'm not good enough turns into God did not, is not, or will not do what I've asked him to do. That self-doubt turns into doubt of God. But again, we need, to, we need to hear this, that true humility arises out of the gospel, right? Not just to know that Jesus is king and be humble to him, but even in the face of our own failure, day in and day out, our own failure, right? The truth of the gospel, Jesus' resurrection interacts with that as well. True humility is accepting God's plans and purposes, but it's also to ex- accept what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do in you. A lot of the, the darkness of life we often blame ourselves for, and I think that's right in a sense, right? We are the sinful ones. We are the ones who give up on God, that we exchange God for our own wickedness, right? That is the sin nature inside of us. And that does end up making us feel whittled down, unacceptable, incapable of doing the things that we know we ought to do. But what should we do in those moments? It seems that life is beating us down, that everything is turning dark, that our failure seems to mount an ever higher pile that we just can't seem to get over. Well, it's to accept God's plan and purpose in you. 
Now, this isn't prosperity gospel, so Mike doesn't need to come up here and take me down from the stage, right? I'm not saying ask God for the success of making you a millionaire or making you handsome finally or any of that stuff. That's not what I'm asking. That's not, that's not what God's telling us to do. But it is to humbly accept the gospel transformation that the Spirit given to us through Christ's death and resurrection indwelling us is doing for our good and God's glory. Now, yes, the days are dark. The choices that we make are not intelligent. They're sinful. And yet, the Lord is with us. Those of us who have believed and trusted in God, Jesus has done something for us that we can never do ourselves, which is to remove the sin from us, to forgive us, to work on us so that that future sanctification can be happening now in us. That that obedience, that contentment, that worship, though we fail at it regularly, day in and day out, God grows in us, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit. How can we be assured that God is working in us? How can we be assured that our faith and our time is due God? Well, it's to look at the resurrection. And when we look at the resurrection, something amazing happens. We get to know God better. Look at verse 12 here. After this, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, like physical bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All of a sudden, the disciples get it. How did they get there? They got there by doing a quick examination by God's hand about who Jesus was, right? The 5,000, the 4,000, those miraculous feedings, the truth about who Jesus was, what he has done, the experience of the disciples there, seeing his divine miracles, the signs from heaven being worked out, the teaching that followed and preceded it, all of it clicked as Jesus put it together for them. And then finally, they understood what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't talking about bread. He was talking about this infectious teaching, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What does that tell us? It tells us that once the disciples remembered who Jesus was, they understood him. They were able to perceive him. They were able to once again trust him for what it was that they were looking for. This means for us that we need to know God. How would we ever be able to respond with humility, faithful humility in light of the resurrection? It's to trust Jesus. It's to know him and to see what he is all about, his plans and his purposes that he promises to us. And I have to say it this way. We're more susceptible to that pride, that false teaching, that self-flagellation. We just want to hurt ourselves, beat ourselves up for God to accept us more if we know more about the weather than God. It's proven in the Pharisees. They knew more about the weather than they knew about God. But you can replace weather with anything. If we know more about sports than we know about God, if we know more about cars than we know about God, if we know more about math than we know about God, right? We're more susceptible to pride, false teaching, and self-flagellation. That's not true humility, though. Humility is to give ourselves, humbly give ourselves in faith over to God. If only we had an example of what it looked like to humbly give ourselves over to God. If you read this passage in light of its context, you guys went over this maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago, the, the, the healing of the Canaanite daughter. And just to, just to, we don't have to reread the whole thing, but just as, as a reminder of what humility looks like, Jesus is off in Gentile land, right? He's off, and he, and he comes up, or this, this Canaanite woman 
comes up to him with, with this serious problem, right? His daughter is demon-possessed. And she, <laughs> amazingly, and you kind of have to put this in contrast with those Pharisees and Sadducees and the disciples, right? She comes up to Jesus asking for help. And we see these, these three different characteristics about the Canaanite woman in opposition to the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the disciples. The first thing is that she comes up asking for mercy. And mercy right off the bat, that's a sign of humility, knowing how great God is and knowing how not great we are. She comes up asking for mercy. But then she comes up and she also reveals a, just a true need. Not the yacht, not the car, not the perfect teeth, whatever it might be but that her daughter is being demon-possessed, and she needs help from God. And then, as much as the disciples tried to get rid of her, she was persistent. In talking to God, she was persistent. Even when Jesus kind of gave her this veiled message about, maybe it'd be better if you turned away, just as a test from God to her, she remained faithful because she knew who God was. Jesus ends up exercising the Canaanite woman's daughter. He didn't even have to go there. He just did it by a word. And Jesus says, great is your faith to this woman. The woman who knew she needed mercy from God. The woman who persisted with explaining her need, but also resting and relying on who God is. Jesus says, how great is your faith. So we need to be more like the Canaanite woman here, begging for mercy, praying relentlessly, bringing real needs, needs that match God's needs, but then also trusting that God's plan and his purposes are good. And if we're doing that, it's going to show up in that obedience, that contentment, and also the worship. And our lives are going to be marked by this change that God is doing in us, and we're humble to accept, and we know that this is all true because of the resurrection. Jesus' success was given to this Canaanite woman, and in Jesus' resurrection, that success is given to us as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you again for the, the grace, Father, um, the, the peace that we have through you. And we're thankful that you prove that to us uh, through the resurrection. Lord, I'm thankful that you didn't give in to the, the pride of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Lord, rather, you, you asked them to wait to see the resurrection. I pray, Father, that you extend that same gift to us, Lord. Pull our eyes towards the truth of you as our reigning living King. Lord, I pray that we would respond in humble faith. And, Lord, that we would choose to accept what you've given us in Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.